We'll hear argument now in number 025664, Charles Thomas Sell versus the United States. Uh, Mr. Short. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. On Friday, this Court entered its order stating that counsel should be prepared to discuss the jurisdiction of this Court and of the Court of Appeals and cited the Cohen versus beneficial case. And Mr. Short, did that subject jurisdiction come up when you were in the Court of Appeals? It did not come up in the Court of Appeals, Justice O'Connor. In the first instance, it is interlocutory. It's a decision from. It's a final decision under the collateral order doctrine. Well, that's the issue, is it? That's the issue. I believe, yes. No trial has taken place. No trial has taken place. Not at all. I, I believe that this court, of course, has jurisdiction pursuant to Section 1254 because it granted a writ of certiorari to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals had jurisdiction pursuant to Section 1291, providing for appeal of final decisions of the district courts. I believe this was a final decision on, pursuant to the Cohen Collateral Final Order Doctrine. Now, while this court has not addressed the Collateral Order Doctrine under these set of facts, the courts of appeals that have, have unanimously concluded that an order approving the involuntary medication of a pretrial detainee constitutes an appealable order under Cohen. And these cases are set forth in footnote 5, page 10 of the government's brief. In order to fall within the collateral order doctrine, the order must satisfy several requirements. It must conclusively determine the disputed question it must resolve an important issue completely and separate from the merits of the underlying action, and it must be effectively unreviewable on appeal from a final judgment. Well, that's the question. Would if, if, it, if we did not think there were jurisdiction, then at the end of the day, if the defendant were tried, I suppose that issue could be raised then. Except by that time, Justice O'Connor, his rights will have already been infringed. He will not be able to become unmedicated. Well, that's the point. The point is whether the third requirement has been met, that it is effectively non-reviewable unless it's reviewed this way. seems to me it is reviewable. We held that in Riggins. In Riggins, Riggins was looking at a post-conviction case, however, and looking only to see if his trial rights had been violated. Well, perhaps it depends on whether we're talking about the right to avoid medication as opposed to the right to avoid medication for purposes of trial. And the latter would give you maybe somewhat more difficulty under prong three, whereas the former, the, the, the right can only be vindicated by treating this as a final order. Would, would you accept that? Or would you say that it's a final even if what you're talking about is the right to avoid medication for purposes of standing trial? I would say on all three, it would certainly under the, under the first and the fifth amendments, whatever rights he would have would have been infringed irreparably once he's medicated. Well, are there, are there no ways to challenge that except in the context of a criminal prosecution? I mean, if, if you had objections to being medicated, whether for purposes of, of, uh, of, of making your client, uh, capable of standing trial or not, 
if you had objections to being medicated, why couldn't those objections be brought under Section 1983 or in some civil action? My reflections on that, Justice Scalia, is it would probably be too late. By the time we brought any type of other action, I believe the government would have proceeded in the criminal case and gone ahead with the order and had him medicated. I also see filing such an action uh, with another district court, for example, having it defer to the court in which the criminal action was pending. I think there's some, I think there's some procedural problems with by the time that was done, Dr. Sell may have already been medicated. And of course, we will address these issues hopefully in our brief that are due, that are due Friday. What, what concerns me is, you know, the, the Cone Doctrine is over half a century old. It, it has no rooting in the text. The text of, of, of Congress's statute is quite absolute. We have made in that half a century only three exceptions under the, under the Cone Doctrine. And I'm truly concerned about, about the extent to which this new exception would, would be available to disrupt uh, criminal trials considerably. Uh, for example, a, a defendant, instead of challenging the, uh, uh, the order initially, can, can halfway through trial decide he does not want any medication. And then the trial has to be postponed so that, so that the order to continue the medication can be appealed. I just see real difficulties in running a criminal justice system when, when this kind of an order is immediately appealable rather than reviewable at the end of the criminal case. Again, Justice Scalia, all I can say is I think by the time that would be reviewed, filed, and considered, I'm afraid Dr. Sell will have been medicated. And again, we will record Well, that, that's perfectly true. But I think the hypothesis offered by Justice Scalia, at least as I understand, is that even if that's the case, perhaps he has to wait till the end of the criminal trial in order to appeal it, because our policy against piecemeal appeals in criminal cases has been so strict. I do, I do understand that, but I, again, I think this is unreviewable. Do you, do you equate it to bail, bail pending trial? If it's denied and the trial goes on, you can't get it back again once the trial is over. Is, is that your point? With respect to once, once he's drugged, he can't be once, stored. It's a simple statement, but once medicated, he can't be unmedicated. I think you're confusing unreviewable with irreversible. To be sure, it can't be reversed, but can it be reviewed? In the case of bail, it can't be reviewed. Because once the trial is over, it's a moot question. It cannot be reviewed. It's not just that it can't be reversed. It cannot be reviewed. But you're here asserting that this issue cannot be reviewed? It seems to me that's just patently false. It can be reviewed. Your complaint is that it can't be reversed. But that has never been the, the Cohen criterion. My view, Justice Scalia, is it can't be effectively reviewed. Once he's medicated with these drugs, Whatever changes take place, these drugs are meant to cause changes to take place. That's the purpose of giving him these drugs. In effect, the, the decision will have been made, his mind will have been altered in whatever segment it's altered, and that cannot be undone. That is his, if that is his objection, and if his objection is not that my criminal trial will be distorted, he should bring a separate civil action, and perhaps the court would stay the criminal action until that one is, until that civil action is determined. But it's a, 
entirely different procedure to come in in the criminal case and seek an interlocutory appeal from that order. And uh, I, I just don't may, may think I ask are. a question about the background about the background of what happened? Isn't it correct that in this case the Bureau of Prisons got an order authorizing them to medicate your your client? Justice Stevens, that is correct. And then you got a stay of that order. Well, yeah, there was appeal. There was an appeal of that order, and then we filed a motion with the magistrate judge to have a hearing as to whether or not. As to the propriety of whether or not he should be medi medicated, yes, that's the, that's the procedural standpoint. But, but to pursue Justice Stevens' question, that order was in the context of this criminal case. Yes, it was. Yeah. The, the Bureau of Prisons order was in the context of this criminal case. I, I thought that they ordered him to be medicated before before the trial was was on the horizon. He was he was sent to the Springfield Medical Center after being found incompetent under Section 4241 in order to be treated to see if he could be restored to competency. You're going to brief this issue, so perhaps we ought to, since your time is running out, hear something on the merits of your Very well. case. Very well. The individual, of course, we are talking about today is Charles Thomas Sell. He's a dentist. He is a pretrial detainee. He has not been convicted of any crime. In his present setting, he is neither dangerous to himself nor is he dangerous to others. The government wishes to medicate Dr. Sell. Is that a finding we have from the lower courts that he is not dangerous to himself or others? Yes, it is, Justice O'Connor. The district court made that finding and essentially reversing the magistrate court, and the appellate court affirmed the district court's finding that he was not dangerous. The government wants to forcibly administer to Dr. Sell antipsychotic drugs solely on the chance that it can bring him to trial on insurance fraud charges, nonviolent crimes. Dr. Sell does not want to be forcibly medicated. In his own words, he said, I do not want my chemistry altered. My brain is working fine. Now, Dr. Sell is legally incompetent. He suffers from a rare mental disorder called delusional disorder persecutory type. This is not schizophrenia. The main feature of this disorder is non-bizarre delusions. In other words, thoughts that are plausible, thoughts that can conceivably come true, probably won't. In Dr. Sell's case, he believes the FBI is out to discredit or harm him. Excuse me. As I take it, that's tri that is tied into the competence to stand trial because he thinks that's why he is being prosecuted. Is that it? That the FBI is behind this? Justice Souter, that's absolutely true. Yeah. That's, part of, that's part of the delusion. But another feature of this disorder is that apart from the direct impact of the delusions, psychosocial functioning is not markedly, markedly impaired, nor is the behavior odd, which means that his disorder only affects him in a narrow, a very narrow band. But the rest, most of his life, he can perform as a normal person would function in a normal matter. And as a matter of fact, then he should be able to stand trial. The problem is so normal. 
the problem with Justice Scalia is because of his delusion, he can't focus on the trial on anything else other than the FBI. Well, what is your solution for this dilemma? We, we cannot try him for the crime that he's accused of because his mind is not working properly. He is entitled to refuse, you say, drugs that would cause his mind to work properly. It's a vicious what, — what, what do we do with him? Do we continue to hold him with the inability to stand trial, not treat him because he refuses treatment? I, it's just a crazy situation. What, what can be done about it? Your Honor, our, because we feel that he is, A, medically competent, no one has ever contended that Dr. Sell is not medically competent. Dr. Sell is perfectly able to make his own health care decisions and make his own decisions about his mind and his body, and he has made the decision. But he's, he's legally incompetent, you say. He's legally incompetent, yes, but he's not and mentally is incompetent. is there a finding below that medication uh, will — there's a substantial probability he would be restored to competence if there were medication? The standards change somewhat, but the answer is essentially yes. And is there a finding that uh, no less intrusive alternative is available to restore him to confidence? Yes, there was such a finding. And uh, that the medication is medically appropriate? Yes, there was. Yeah. A, there was. And even under those circumstances, you assert that there uh, can be no medication? Yes, that is, that is my position. And, and what is your general principle of law that justifies your position? First of all, since he is medically competent, he can make decisions about his own person and body. I, I thought that you might have gone further in your case and to say the government just has no right to put needles into pretrial detainees. Well, at, on a, at a basic level, that is, that is what it is. We have a, a non-dangerous... I mean, they can, they can make the defendant wear a hat, put on clothes, give a voice exemplar. Uh, this is somehow different. It seems to me at least that ought, this is, you don't exactly argue that. This is very different, Your Honor. We are dealing with a person who has been merely accused of a crime. He is medically competent. He is non-dangerous. Well, you, you say he's non-dangerous. He, he was later charged with attempted murder, wasn't he? He was charged with that offense, yes. But the yeah, he doesn't sound non-dangerous. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do? Just do this on the hypothetical basis that he isn't, although maybe he is? Uh, uh, no, uh, just prior, not at all. The non-dangerousness, the only, the only times, as I read the cases, pretrial detainees, even civilly committed people, can be medically administered antipsychotic drugs is if they are in the prison setting and they are dangerous to themselves. So, so a person who's in a mental hospital civilly committed and is dangerous to, going to commit suicide or, or possibly kill someone, but the doctors in that civil setting are forbidden to uh, administer psychotic drugs, that's not my understanding. Uh, maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I misstated. Right, but, but, so, so, but my question on this case is the following. Uh, I take it, you say, uh, to follow the uh, Psychological Association standards. One, the Court did consider whether any non-drug therapy could restore him to competence, and it answered the question, no. 
the court did consider whether there was a substantial likelihood of success in restoring the defendant to competence, and they answered yes. The court did consider whether the effectiveness of the drugs clearly outweighed the risk from side effects, and it said yes. It also considered the effects on the Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights to fair trial and decided they weren't enough to change the question. So it seems to me if once you concede all that, they're following the right standards. So is your claim that we should go and review because uh, they, although they purported to follow the right standards, they didn't really do it? In other words, go into the facts of this case? Or is your claim that those standards, that your side's amica says are the right ones, are not the right ones? And if so, what are? Our view is that, first of all, we have fundamental rights at stake here. And the government must show then, of course, a compelling interest in overriding those fundamental interests. But well, I would appreciate a direct answer to my I'm question. Sorry, it seems to me either you have to say that the psychological association standards are wrong, or you have to say they're right. And if you say they're right, then you have to ask us to say they weren't applied correctly here. But I want to know if you think they're the wrong ones or if you think they're the right ones. I'm not sure I understand the Well, if you read, sufficiently you simply read the table of contents, as I'm certain you have, oh, I have. of the APA, the Psychiat Psychological Association's brief, filed on your side, yes. they have four standards. So I'm asking you if you think those are the right standards. I think essentially those are the right okay. standards. Okay. If you think those are the right standards, do you think they were applied here? Yes. Uh, yes. All right. Then is what you're asking us to do, since you think they were applied and you don't like the answer the Court came to, is what you're asking us to do today is take those standards, look to see how the Court applied them, and come to the conclusion that they applied them incorrectly? Or are you asking us to do something else? I'm just trying to clarify. Essentially, that's it. That's and I, d I don't know why you concede that the government has this right at all. What gives the government the authority to medicate a pretrial detainee or, or, or someone pretrial? Suppose he's not even in, in custody. Can they send somebody out with a needle the day before the trial and say, well, we're going to get you ready for trial? Well, it's very possible then, of course, I'm not understanding Justice Breyer's contention, and it's my fault. I don't concede that they can do this at all. Well, then you think these standards are wrong. I mean, standards, can you call up in your mind? I won't I'm, pursue this, but I'm, yes. I'm just trying to clarify what it is you want us to do. Now, call into your own mind the standards of the American Psychological Association. I read that, Amicus, with some care. I'm very yes. interested. And it seemed to me similar in principle to the government's point of view. And I want to know, in, though they may not think they're applied correctly here, but, but what was... Tell me about it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not re I can't recall their standards with such preciseness, but I can answer that question. Well, I thought, looking at your brief, that you were asserting that the petitioner has a right to be free from compelled medication by the government, period, per se. That's the rule. That is my that is Page 26 of your brief. So you don't... You don't go along with any That's other right. standards. You're saying there is an absolute right to be free from compelled medication. That is our position. How about, how about, how about vaccinating little children with a needle against smallpox? I guess 
there's no right to do that by the government? Yes, there is a right to do that. The intrusion there is, is very minimal. And I think the government, the government interest in obviously protecting against the, the spread of whatever disease. And I take it that's protect. pursuant to the statute, not because some prosecutor thinks it's a good idea. That's then you don't even agree with the dissenting judge in the court below who said there could be forcible medication for a violent crime. I do not. That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. Oh, I do pro- not believe Then I wish you'd, you'd go back to a question I asked earlier that I don't think I got an answer to. What do you propose that we do with this man? He's been accused of a serious crime. For purposes of this case, you're willing to assume it would be the same if he had been accused of a violent crime. That's correct. He, his, his mental ability is such that he cannot be tried. The means are available to straighten his mind out so that he is competent to stand trial, but you say, no, if he refuses that, we must respect his wishes. Then what do we do with him? Do, do, do we let him go? The, the, the direct answer to your question, Justice Scalia, is, is we, that, let him not, we let him is go. Is that you do not, he will not be let go. What will Why happen not? to him? You can't keep him in prison indefinitely. I had very much the same question in mind, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong. He could not be civilly committed since he's been found non-dangerous. That's correct. If he were found dangerous, he could be civilly committed. So here he is, non-dangerous, but incompetent to stand trial. You, you agree that civil commitment was, isn't, isn't available under those circumstances? No, I, civil commitment is what's going to happen to this individual under 4241. How? He will then go How to is 40. he going to be committed if he's not dangerous? Because 4241 provides that a person who can't stand trial because they are legally incompetent are referred to the sections of 4246. The director at that facility under section 4246 will then have to make a determination as to whether or not Dr. Sell is a substantial risk to, to persons or property of, of others if, and, and you if were released. Us, and you are telling us, are you not, that he is not a substantial risk? That, that, that may not be something we accept in view of the murder charge, but, I mean, on your theory, you're saying he's not dangerous. Justice Souter, I'm saying there are two different standards. No, I realize there are two different standards, but as, if I understand the representations you have been making to the Court about your client, under the standard for commitment, if he cannot be tried, he would not be subject to commitment. Am I wrong? Yes, Your Honor. He would. So are you, are you, he would. He, would, he go, would be subject to commitment? He is subject to commitment under 4246. He satisfies the criteria. For yes, commitment. he does. He does. And but I thought that the whole reason why we, how you got to this stage is that a district court made a finding that this man is not a danger to himself or others. And now you want to say for purposes of the, your, your being here on that question, could he be medicated because he's not a danger to himself or others, that finding holds. But once he avoids the trial, then he can say, ah, oh, but for purposes of civil commitment, I am dangerous to myself or others? No, that's, that's not where, that, what will happen to, to, to Dr. Sally. He will then go from the 4241 to 4246, at which time the director of that facility will have to make a determination whether he is a substantial risk to others 
or property rights. If he is released, he then has to make that certification. It goes to the district court. They have to prove that by clear and convincing evidence. And if they so show, he does remain no, But you committed. keep saying, if they show, are you conceding that, in fact, the evidence is there to show it and that he will be, in fact, subject to — that he will, in fact, be lawfully committed? No, I am — I'm not — I'm not — Then I don't see I how will, you've answered Justice Scalia's question. No, I will tell you, from my experience in this case, I suspect that precisely what's going to happen because of what the government view is of this individual. No, but you well, — I, I hope that's what's going to happen, but I — but I don't know how it — how it comes about uh, with the law as you've described it to us. That's, that's my problem. I have a different problem. Let me explain to you what — I imagine that the slogan, mind-altering drugs, is not a very good slogan for present purposes, because there are a lot of seriously ill people whom these drugs do help a lot. That's correct. Now, if we're thinking of that class of people, how are they any different from the class of people with very, very high blood pressure whose lives are at risk? and could be perhaps medicated with blood pressure medicine. These people could be medicated with anti-delusional medicine. Now, is there a difference between those two circumstances? That doesn't answer the question, because what I'm looking for are the right standards to use to separate those genuinely ill people from others who may be more borderline or may be less obviously helped. Now, you don't, I realize now you don't have much time, but I'm, that's what I'm struggling with. The, stand, in this case. the standard, Your Honor, is whether or not, and this is very basic, whether the person has the right to make the choice. Our position is that Dr. Sell has the right to make the choice over his medical decisions. He has had experience with antipsychotic drugs. He took Haldol in the 1980s. He had an attack of acute dystonia which this Court has recognized as being a serious side effect in at least three cases, Harper, Riggins, and Mills. He also has a psychiatrist that has told him that antipsychotic drugs will not work on delusional disorders. And Dr. Sell, with all due respect to what he's charged with, is not a stupid person. He does not want to undergo the effects of antipsychotic medication. He is making that a free choice, and with all due respect, I think he has a right to make that choice. Reserve your remaining time, Mr. Short. Thank you, Your Honor. I do. Very well. Uh, Mr. Dreeben, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I'd like to address the question of jurisdiction first. Dr. Sell's claim should be analyzed as having two related but distinct components. One component of his claim is a Harper-style objection to forcible medication by the government in order to render him competent to stand trial. The second component of his claim is a Riggins-style objection to the fairness of his trial if, in fact, he is medicated and restored to competence and tried. The Riggins-style claim is clearly not amenable to review under the collateral order doctrine. Dr. Sell has not even been tried. There is clearly no determination yet whether he can be given a fair trial, whether he will receive one. And he may raise an objection to the fairness of his trial at the conclusion of the criminal case and obtain reversal of his conviction at that time. 
But the Harper-style claim is amenable to review under the collateral order doctrine. It deals with a right that is effectively unreviewable if not reviewed now, just as this Court's cases addressing double jeopardy claims and qualified immunity claims are effectively unreviewable if not reviewed. Well, it's not just they're unreviewable, Mr. Dreeben, but it would, I think we said in those cases the, the claim was a right not to be tried. Correct. Not and to be tried at all. That right would be lost if the trial occurs. Here, one of his claims is a right not to be medicated. That right will be lost if, in fact, he is medicated. Well, what if, what if, what if someone says, I claim a right to be tried without this evidence that I want suppressed, but the Court has ruled otherwise? Well, that's right, and that's because the Court has concluded that there is no right not to be tried in the relevant sense without particular evidence that will be suppressed. What that reflects is a right whose remedy would be a right not to have the evidence used against them, which could include reversal of the conviction. So that kind of a claim is reviewable at the end of the case. But taking Dr. Sell's <clears throat> claims at face value, he's saying it will violate my First Amendment rights and my substantive due process rights to be medicated. And those claims are, in a sense, independent of the main criminal action. Justice Scalia is correct that, in a sense, they could be viewed as claims that could be brought independently. But I think that under the statutory scheme that exists, they are better brought in the context of the criminal case rather than through an independent APA action or some other form of action. Well, I'd, I'd be less worried if, if all that was before us here is the up or down question whether you have an absolute right to refuse medication. And, and once, once that is disposed of, the issue goes away. But that's not what's before us here. That is not the only thing before us here. There, there is also the question, assuming that you can be medicated, what are the criteria? And I assume that any prisoner can make the claim, I have a right not to be medicated unless these criteria are fulfilled. So in every criminal case, you're going to have a pre, uh, with someone who has psychological difficulties or who is found to be not triable because of his mental state, you, you're going to have to have this preliminary appeal all the way up before the trial can even start. It's, it's, it's not a one-time thing. Justice Scalia, I'm a little bit less concerned about the practical consequences, although I share the view that the delay of the criminal case, and more importantly, concretely here, the delay in starting the medication is a critical problem that results from collateral order review. But there are two things that I think reduce any of the costs associated with permitting collateral order review. First, if this Court does settle the fundamental question in favor of the government and determines that on an appropriate showing that this Court defines, medication for the purpose of restoring competence is permissible. In the future, criminal defendants will not be able to assert that broad, unsettled, and important legal issue and obtain a stay of the medication order in order to litigate it. What they would have to show is that the actual application of the, those standards to the particular facts of a case is incorrect. 
That will most likely be reviewed under a more deferential standard. Courts of appeals can establish expedited calendars to dispose of frivolous claims and can weed out those claims that don't But it would certainly be a new exception to the collateral order doctrine, would it not? It would be a new exception as applied to the particular facts of this case, but the standards of the collateral order doctrine, I think, are met. And there is Let me ask you, if we reach the question of what standards to apply, uh, it doesn't fit comfortably in any uh, setting with which we're familiar, strict scrutiny, rational basis test. Do you see this as somewhere in between some kind of heightened review? And if so, uh, what case do you think is closest? Justice O'Connor, I do think that a heightened form of review is appropriate. I don't have any case that has precisely articulated the correct standard of review, but in all of this Court's substantive due process cases, what the Court has done is balanced the interests of the individual in his liberty, or in this case in the First Amendment concerns, against the government's interests in achieving uh, the objectives that it has. How, how do you describe the authority of the government to make this order at all? Suppose this defendant were under a voluntary commitment in a private institution. Could you send your guy out there with the needle the day before the trial? In order to render the defendant competent to stand trial, Your Honor, the government would have to have some sort of a finding that would justify. Well, you have, the, you have this, this, this case. Let's assume it's this person, and, and only with the uh, hypothetical alteration that I've given. It's this person, but he's in a private facility, voluntary commitment. Well, I don't think that that makes any difference at all, Justice Kennedy. All right, so what is the authority of the government to go out and force him to be medi medicated so that he behaves the way the government wants him to at trial? Well, the government's authority here is the, it derives from the fact that Dr. Sell has been indicted on serious criminal charges, and he has been in found incompetent to stand trial on those charges. The government will be completely unable to achieve what this Court has recognized to be the compelling interest in adjudicating serious criminal charges. Could you inoculate a, a material witness? You, you have to have a prosecution witness. He's the key witness. He's in common. Could you force him to be inoculated the day before the trial? It's the same due process question as presented here, Justice Kennedy, with the possible difference that our interests may be greater with respect to a person who has been charged than with respect to a person who is not. Material witnesses are held all the time without I, I fully understand that, and I want to know if they can be medicated and what your authority is for doing it. Well, the authority would be an application of any principle that this Court adopts in this case to permit us to medicate the defendant. As I indicated, there is a distinction between a witness and a defendant. But here we deal with someone who has already been placed under an indictment, which is to in a certain extent a significant restriction on liberty as well as an indication of a paramount government interest in adjudicating the charges. Well, at, at the very least, it seems to me that you should have statutory authority for doing this. I mean, just the court thinks it's a good idea that witnesses behave a certain way and order medication. Well, I think maybe it's important to back up and look at how this case came to be before the court. Dr. Sell 
was found to be incompetent to stand trial, and pursuant to statute, Section 4241D of Title 18, he was committed to the Bureau of Prisons for treatment to determine whether his competency could be restored. In the context of that confinement at a medical facility, pursuant to regulations of the Bureau of Prisons, the Bureau of Prisons determined that antipsychotic medication and nothing else was the means by which the government could restore him to competency. Well, that, that was competency for trial. That, that's, that's, that's the, and that's not the standard in the regulations as I understand it. No, the regulations do indeed address the potential of medication for the purpose of rendering competence to stand trial. That's one of the criteria that is given to the Bureau of Prisons when it accepts a patient for treatment under Section 4241D. And the Bureau, in fact, made the finding that this was a medically appropriate treatment for a person who has the illness, the serious uh, delusional disorder that Dr. Sell has, and that this treatment had a substantial probability of restoring him to competence. Mr. Friedman, can you back up just for a minute, because there's a piece of this that I'm not clear on. I thought that before the issue of competence to stand trial came up, the Bureau of Prisons had determined this man to be dangerous to himself or others without medication, and that the Bureau of Prisons was going to medicate him under the danger standard. The, the administrative order, and it's the same administrative order that I referred to in answering Justice Kennedy's question, Justice Ginsburg, does rest on both restoration of competency and, to a certain extent, on concerns about danger. What happened after the Bureau of Prisons entered that order is not that it immediately implemented it and began to medicate Dr. Sell. Rather, it stayed the order, and Dr. Sell then sought judicial review in the very court that had ordered his commitment, which is why I think that it was appropriate for the district court to hear this in the criminal action rather than under some separate APA action. This is the district court that had ordered Dr. Sell confined. The magistrate judge determined that the government had not made a showing of dangerousness, which would have permitted medication under Washington versus Harper, but that it had adequately shown that medication was necessary in order to restore Dr. Sell uh, to be competent for trial. Dr. Sell then appealed that determination to the district court, which entered its final decision, saying that the Bureau of Prisons could medicate. There was a substantial probability of restoring competence. The antipsychotic medication was medically appropriate treatment for the psychotic illness that Dr. Sell had, and that there was a reasonable likelihood of a fair trial, and any particularized fair trial concerns that Dr. Sell was raising involving effects on his demeanor or his effects to uh, relate to counsel should be determined after the medication has been administered and it's been determined whether, in fact, he was restored to competence. Can we get your um, answer to the question that Justice Scalia asked Mr. Short? That is, suppose um, it is determined that he can't be medicated for the purpose of making him competent. What happens to him? Well, at that point, uh, Mr. Short is correct that under uh, 4241, he would then be referred over to the um, director of a medical facility where he would be held for confinement to determine, pursuant to Section 4246, whether, if released, he would be dangerous to himself or others. Or All right, suppose he's not. 
then he goes free. And the question I would like to know is, suppose that you have a person who has very high blood pressure, a defendant. Is it permissible or clearly permissible under the law to force him to take blood pressure medication so he can go to trial? It is not something that courts of appeals that I have seen have had to deal with. Right. So we have exactly the same question. Correct. And so the question is not necessarily about psychiatry. It's about whether or not you can force a person to take medicine that makes him competent to stand trial. I think it's a very particularized inquiry under the substance. I don't know why it would be — it may or may not be different with psychiatry. But then the question comes back to, assuming we have the right standards, which are — I think you and the APA agree, the psychological people. I don't see much of a difference there between you, the lower courts, and as to the standards, if you can medicate a competent — if you can medicate such a person at all. And so what we know is that you can go to the person with high blood pressure or the person who is seriously mentally ill, and you can medicate him because the government has a good reason where he's going to be tried for murder, assault, et cetera. All right? Here we have a property crime. Is there still a good reason? Suppose it were a traffic ticket. I mean, I take it this is a person whom, in the absence of a criminal proceeding, the government could not compel to take medication. Am I right? Now, I've given you a number of things. I'm trying to elicit your views on things that are of concern to me. Justice Breyer, the question of what would happen if Dr. Sell were living safely in free society is obviously distinct from this case. There is no authority — No, it's not obviously distinct because I am assuming a person who is not a danger to himself or others is, in fact, in that position. And it's not distinct because you say the government has an interest in having him medicated for trial. I don't see the difference in someone who's at liberty and in custody. I had taken Justice Breyer's question to involve somebody who's at liberty but not charged with a criminal offense. All right. Now, if you want to make a difference, fine. Do it. I start with the proposition that a person who is wandering around, a free person, now suddenly is charged. Now he says, I have very high blood pressure and I won't take my medicine. Or he says, I'm delusional and I won't take my medicine. If — can the government compel person one or person two to do it? Yes, to both. Yes, where it's murder and assault. If they're about to — a traffic ticket? No. All right. Now, if that's — if that's your — Justice Breyer, the question that you're asking is how serious need the offense be in order to justify an intrusion on substantive due process interests, whether they be through psychiatric medication or through blood pressure medication? Well, that's exactly right. That is my question, because I thought that's what was at issue in this case. And I entirely agree that — that it needs to be a sufficiently serious offense to outweigh the — Well, what is the basis for the government ordering medication in the case of high blood pressure, where I would think it doesn't necessarily interfere with your ability to make trial decisions? Well, to the extent that a person was making a claim that I'm not medically competent to go to trial because I have high blood pressure, and if I go to trial, I may have a heart attack and die, this actually happens. People will come into court and say, you can't try me now because I'm too fragile. I have a serious health condition. And courts then have to balance. It's essentially the same balancing test that's at issue in this case. They have to balance — Can I ask you a question that I've been trying to — thinking about for quite a while? Is the 
amount of time he's already been in custody as compared to the potential sentence he might receive relevant to the analysis? It may be, Justice Stevens, relevant to the analysis to the extent that courts have held that the amount of time that a person can be held for treatment um, under 4241D cannot exceed the ultimate sentence that they would receive. But is that not true in this case? No, it's not true in this case for a number of reasons. First of all, even limiting consideration to the Medicaid fraud and money laundering charges, the test is the maximum sentence that the defendant could receive as a matter of statutory law, and he could receive a sentence. The maximum sentence rather than what the sentencing guidelines would provide. Well, this Court obviously hasn't addressed the question, and it would be free to weigh If in. you assumed it was the sentencing guidelines rather than the maximum statutory sentence, is it not true that his period of confinement has already approached that that time? Yes, it probably is. Of course, he's also charged with attempted murder and conspiracy to murder charges. Yes, but that was not that was not part of the analysis, as I understood it, in the Court of Appeals decision. Well, it relied the, entirely on the financial crimes. You're right, Justice Stevens. But to the extent that the question is how long can the government hold him for treatment, he's clearly indicted for. Um, attempted murder and conspiracy to murder charges, and the length that the government could hold well, Is it critical to your position in this case that we take into account the indictment for, uh, for, for attempted murder? No, because the government's position here is that any felony case is serious enough. Even if the, the time he's already been in custody exceeds the time he would get under the sentencing guidelines? Well, it Again, if, if the court were to hold, it's not critical to my position because my position is its statutory maximum. If the court were to hold that we're not going to look at the attempted murder and conspiracy murder charges, we are only going to look at the sentencing guideline sentence, and we are going to hold that he cannot be held for treatment longer than his ultimate potential sentence, then the court would have no choice but to remand for uh, treatment of Dr. Sell under 4246 to determine whether he should be civilly committed. Those are questions that were never litigated in any court and are certainly not raised in the petition for certiorari. What is raised in the petition for certiorari is whether uh, treatment to render a defendant competent to stand trial on a nonviolent offense is a sufficient government interest. May I ask this other question just to get sure I have your understanding on it? Uh, has he or has he not been getting civil, uh, get, getting treatment during the period of his detention? He has not been getting um, uh, antipsychotic medication. He gets. No, he's not getting medicine. I know he's not getting medical uh, medicine, but has he been getting any other kind of treatment for his ailment? Essentially, no. And the reason is that there is no other form of treatment standing alone that would have any likelihood of success with a person with delusional disorder, persecutory type. This is a serious thought disorder interfering with Dr. Sell's ability to rationally understand what is going on in the world. And it's well established in the medical literature that antipsychotic medication and nothing else is the only thing that may hold promise of treating the, uh, the ailment that he has. Now, the, the Mr. Dreeben, may I ask you to comment on this, on, on the, the question of medication? <laughs> One of the arguments is that if you accept, for example, essentially your standard or the psychological association standard, in applying it, you cannot apply it as it were in gross. You've got to apply it uh, with reference to the specific medication which is proposed. And that was not done in this case. 
I think the argument is it's important because the effects of the various possible antipsychotic medications may vary tremendously. Would you comment on, on that argument, that even if we accept the standards, they, they were not adequately met here because the, the order was not drug-specific? Justice Souter, if a court were to attempt to make an order drug-specific for a patient, it would be essentially ignoring the medical reality of what this treatment will entail. Now, Dr. Wolfson, the treating psychiatrist or consulting psychiatrist at the hearing, uh, testified that in his view there were two particular medications, ketiapine and olanzapine, which were likely to be the most uh, suitable ones for Dr. Sell's case because of their very um, minimal side effect profile, that they would have a much better chance of not inducing sedation or other side effects that he might claim would interfere with the fairness of his trial. But he explained that he did not want to be locked into a particular medication because one of his hopes as the psychiatrist on the case is that Dr. Sell would participate in choosing, if he had been told he's ordered to take medication, which medication he wanted to take. This is the kind of interactive process that doctors and patients have all the time. And for a court to superimpose some rigid rule up front that establishes this and only this medication can be administered. Mr. Dreeben, isn't there something short of that, though? I mean, we, we are told that there are the old kind of drugs that could be injected and the new drugs, which originally had to be taken orally. Even that distinction between the category of drug, not the particular drug within that category, or even uh, a decision between something that's injectable and something that would have to force him to swallow. Isn't isn't that kind of determination something that shouldn't, shouldn't there be some control over the government's discretion? Well, I think the court should be very cautious about superimposing a judicial decision-making process. But no, just a, asking the government to identify that general class of drugs, not, not the court making the decision in the first instance. The, the problem with that, Justice Ginsburg, is that the response that an individual patient has to a drug is individual-specific. <clears throat> side effects can be described in general categories, but nobody knows what side effects will actually occur or whether the drugs will be effective until they've been administered. And it is not uncommon for the treating psychiatrist to discover that a drug that may have a wildly uh, you know, significant side effect in one individual has none in another. And a drug that's anticipated to be entirely successful turns out not to be successful. One of the the, the newer, uh, new generation of drugs, the atypical drugs that have the more favorable side effect profiles in general, may not turn out to be suitable but for a course, particular patient. One, one answer to that is, this is sufficiently serious so that you ought to have to come back. In other words, in, in, in the, the, the premise of your argument is that uh, there's kind of an either-or choice that is made here, Medicaid or don't Medicaid. Uh, but if the if the substantive if, if a substantive due process right is recognized, one question here is how serious is it, and maybe it ought to be regarded uh, as as so serious uh, that the government would have to come back. That would might be true, Justice Souter, if the government's alternatives were antipsychotic medication and psychosurgery. 
so that the difference was dramatic between the two forms of treatment that are being uh, proposed. But even looking at the, the classes of drugs that are at issue here, the atypical drugs and the older generation of, of typical antipsychotic drugs, there are very important and dramatic differences between them, but they belong to a family of medications that are used for treatment all the time. And the psychiatrist's understanding of the various range of effects that might be achieved is not likely to be enhanced by subjecting that to judicial review, nor are the potential side effects so dramatically different that it calls for an entirely different substantive due process analysis. May I ask you a different question about seriousness? And I think it was raised originally by a question from Justice Kennedy, and I'm not, I'm not sure of the facts or of your answer. Um, should we treat this, uh, assuming we are going to uh, recognize it, as sufficiently serious uh, that the government should have no power in the absence of legislation? And if that is so, is there any legislation that authorizes this? There is legislation that authorizes and requires the Bureau of Prisons to treat an individual to attempt to restore him to competency once he has been determined incompetent. That's what Section 4241D says. Now, it does not so it's treat for purposes of competency. Correct. Yeah. And it does not specifically refer to antipsychotic medication. But in 1984, when this legislation was enacted, it was well known that for the kind of psychotic conditions that render a defendant incompetent to stand trial, it's antipsychotic but, but medication But you say that the, what, the government can do this even if the defendant is, is not in, in custody. And, and just to follow the same point, suppose a defendant not in custody at home is uh, undergoing a hunger strike and he's going to die before the trial. Can the government come out and force feed him? You know, Justice Kennedy, I, I'll answer that question, yes, but I recognize that it involves a very different set of considerations because the intrusion through force feeding of somebody who wants to die might be considered to be a very different decision than treating an ill person's illness with medication that is the norm that's used to treat people with these kinds of but, disorders. But if, if, if you're, but if your interest is in making the defendant stand trial, it, it's, it seemed to me that uh, you could suppose it was I don't I, we should play with a hypothetical and your, your time is about running out. I, I still just don't understand your basic authority to do this at all. Well, as a matter of the organization of government, this Court has recognized that the ability to resolve criminal charges through the mechanism of a trial is a compelling interest in maintaining social order and peace. And in order to try these criminal charges, the government has no option but to attempt to restore competency. What's the most intrusive thing that it's clear the government can do to get the defendant inside the courthouse door? Well, it, it's quite clear that the government may um, seize the person and hold them in pretrial detention, which is a massive... Right, physically order. seizing him, shackling him, I guess. Anything else? Not that this court has considered, but... This, this kind of medication has to be judged against the backdrop of the nature of the intrusion and the efficacy of the treatment for those people who have this kind of disorder. Virtually everyone who is committed to the Bureau of Prisons Care for Incompetency Determinations has some form of psychotic disorder that can be treated. There are, of course, organic 
uh, problems that can not be treatable at all, and there are other kinds of mental illness that can create this. But the statistics that the Bureau of Prisons furnished us in considering this case shows that 80 percent of the individuals who are committed take these drugs voluntarily. Um, of the remaining 20 percent who did not, there's very little um, indication that any sort of judicial relief has been sought through appellate review. And I think that's because these drugs enable someone who has serious psychotic orders to be restored to a point of rationality where they can make decisions about what they want to do with their life. So instead of remaining incompetent and perhaps being committed indefinitely to a Bureau of Prisons facility where they may be warehoused without any treatment or being released if they are not subject to civil commitment so that they don't stand trial on criminal charges and suffer essentially no consequences, most individuals accept the fact particularly after an initial round of treatment has rendered them competent so that they can understand the benefits of this, that the medication is the appropriate medically uh, sanctioned way to deal with the disease that they have. And when the government has no mechanism to achieve its essential interest in adjudicating criminal charges, but for using these medically appropriate means, and it can show the, the items that have been laid out in our brief of medical appropriateness, no less a restrictive alternative, um, and that there's a reason to expect that a fair trial will not be precluded, the government should appropriately have the authority to override the substantive due process interest that the defendant has asserted and medicate him. May I ask one last question before your light goes off? Uh, under the statute that provides credit for prior custody, would this uh, defendant's custody in the count? Yes, it would, Justice Stevens. Thank you, Mr. Dreeben. Mr. Short, you have four minutes remaining. I only have a two, two minutes I need to use, Your Honor. I'm going to uh, essentially combine one of the comments made by Mr. Dreeben with questions posed by Justice Stevens. Mr. Dreeben says there is a — and we are talking, of course, by a, about an individual. While I understand there's an overall concern about what, what the results of this case, case are, we are talking about Dr. Sell specifically. And the government's interest — the government states that they have a compelling interest in prosecuting Dr. Sell. Now, I do not believe the statutory maximum is what, is what guides here on the thought of how long has Dr. Sell been in custody. Dr. Sell has been in custody except for a five-month period of time when he was out on bond since May of 1997. Under any way you calculate the guidelines, and I, and I submit that guidelines is the only way you can calculate it, he has served much more time than he would have served had he been convicted and sentenced on this crime. And under these circumstances, I do not see any compelling interest whatsoever on the part of the government in prosecuting this defendant, Dr. Sell. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Short. The case is submitted.